and welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Ginny Smith. And you find us this week at the Cambridge Science Centre, where we're recording this programme, which is all about volcanoes, in front of this wonderful audience. This month marks 200 years since one of the most dramatic natural disasters in human history, the eruption of Mount Tambora. To mark this occasion, we have gathered together a panel of volcano experts to talk us through what actually happens when a volcano erupts. Now, another famous eruption is that of Mount Vesuvius in Italy. When it erupted in 79 AD, it devastated the nearby towns of Pompeii and Herculaneum. Luckily for us, this eruption was extremely well documented, and today we're going to hear some of the excerpts from an eyewitness account that was written by Pliny the Younger. His uncle, Pliny the Elder, was an official in the Roman court, in charge of the fleet in the area of the Bay of Naples, and he was also a naturalist. When Vesuvius erupted in 79 AD, his nephew, Pliny the Younger, was staying with him in Mycenaeum, about 20 kilometres from Pompeii. Pliny the Younger had a good view of the volcano across the bay to the west, and recorded his experiences in a series of letters. In this first excerpt, Pliny writes about first realising a mountain later identified as Mount Vesuvius, was becoming active. A cloud from which mountain was uncertain at this distance was ascending, the appearance of which I cannot give you a more exact description than by liking it to that of a pine tree, for it shot up to a great height in the form of a very tall trunk, which spread itself out at the top into a sort of branches. It appeared sometimes bright and sometimes dark and spotted, according as it was either more or less impregnated with earth and cinders. This phenomenon seemed to a man of such learning and research as my uncle extraordinary and worth further looking into. While for the Romans it may have seemed that this eruption occurred with no warning signs, we now know that events in the days leading up to it were caused by the pressure inside the volcano. Pliny wrote... For several days past, there had been earth tremors, which were not particularly alarming because they are frequent in Campania. But that night, the shocks were so violent that everything felt as if it was not only shaken, but overturned. By now, it was dawn, but the light was still dim and faint. The buildings round us were already tottering. This finally decided us to leave the town. So what exactly was going on under Pompeii and the surrounding towns to cause these earthquakes and why are some regions prone to volcanoes when others aren't? Professor Marin Holness is here to tell us a bit more. What actually is a volcano? Volcanoes are places on the Earth's crust where molten rock can escape. So you often find them actually sitting above major fractures in the crust, major faults that go down for tens of kilometres because that provides a very easy pathway for this molten rock to come up. What about the geography, though? Because there are some areas that have lots and lots of volcanoes and others that don't. So what's special about those areas? If we start from the the centre of the Earth, we've got a solid core that's made of iron, and then the outer part of the core is also made of iron, and that's liquid, and that's moving around by convection. Now, if we go further out into the mantle, we're back into solid rock again, and that's solid all the way up to the surface and the crust. So if we want to make a volcano, we have got to melt that solid mantle. So there are three different places where we can manage to do that. 
Now, if you look in the centres of the oceans, like the Atlantic Ocean, we've got two oceanic plates that are being pulled apart. And because you can't make a hole in the Earth, if you're pulling those oceanic plates apart, you're forcing the solid mantle underlying those two plates upwards. And it comes up really quickly. And as it moves up fast, it doesn't lose any heat, so it starts to melt. So then that melt moves straight up to the surface, and you get a continuous line of volcanoes all the way down the mid-ocean ridges. So that's one way of making volcanoes. Apparently those, those plates moving away from the mid-ocean ridge are going at roughly the same rate your fingernails grow. Is that true? That's exactly true. Centimetres a year. The fastest plate movements we have are in the East Pacific, and they're going at 22 centimetres a year. Where else, apart from mid-ocean ridges, then, do we get volcanic activity? Well, our own favourite volcanic region is in Iceland. That's the nearest to us. And that is there because this solid mantle is solid, but it's convecting, it's moving. So there's heat being taken from the centre of the Earth, and it's moving up like boiling water. And if you bring a plume of this hot, solid stuff up, it's moving fast enough that it will melt. So you get a hotspot volcano. That's what we've got under Iceland. So you'll find a lot of sort of holiday destinations in the oceans are actually sitting above hotspots. So Hawaii is, St Helena, where they put Napoleon. These are all volcanic islands sitting on top of one of these hotspots. And what about Italy, where Vesuvius is? That's the final way of melting the mantle. Where we have an oceanic plate moving towards a continental plate, the oceanic plate is quite heavy and dense and it will subduct underneath the continent. So in the particular example we have in Italy, we've got movement of Africa towards Europe. And the African plate has got a bit of oceanic plate stuck to the end, which is where the Mediterranean is, and that is being subducted underneath Europe. Now that oceanic plate has been in contact with seawater. So the rocks that you're putting down into the earth are wet. And you're putting those rocks down into the earth very fast and the water in those rocks gets released. And if you add water to solid mantle, it will melt. So all you're doing is you're pushing down the Mediterranean underneath Italy. The water's coming off, it's going into the mantle and it's melting. So Italy is blessed with a great family of volcanoes. You've got Etna, you've got Stromboli, you've got Vesuvius and you've got other smaller ones as well. And they're all there because of the continental collision between Africa and Europe. Where does all the heat come from that's making all this possible? There are several different sources of heat. When the Earth was originally formed from lots of different particles, lots of in a dust cloud, it all came together and that released potential energy and gravitational energy. So you started out with a great hot ball. The other source of heat, which is still going on, is radioactive decay. So we've got a whole set of, of elements within the Earth that are breaking down radioactively, and every time they do that, they generate heat. So that's why the Earth is hot. It's really, really hot in the middle, and it's losing this heat by convection. And the sort of surface manifestation, if you like, of that convection are the volcanoes. And going back to what Pliny experienced, what was the cause of these earthquakes that were happening before the eruption really got going properly? That was because some of the molten rock was moving up, ready to erupt. So the molten rock is moving up because it's got a low density, it's quite buoyant, it wants to go up. And, you know, there were no holes in the earth, 
So the way it makes space for itself is by pushing everything else out of the way. As it pushes it out of the way, it generates earthquakes. It's breaking the rock to get out. So that is what he was experiencing. And if you see all of this magma coming up towards the surface of the Earth, do you see almost an inflation going on? Does the Earth sort of swell or does an area where there's going to be a volcano, does it get bigger because of that rock moving into it? Yes, it does. So you can, you can watch volcanoes breathing, if you like. So when the magma moves up, just before an eruption, the volcano swells, you get an eruption, it collapses again. How much does it swell up by? Well, there was one volcano in America, Mount St. Helens, that erupted in May 1980, and it swelled enormously. You didn't even need special instruments to see it. You could see the side of the mountain bulging up immediately prior to the eruption. Good grief. And so that's the danger sign. Yes, you get out of the way as fast as you can at that point. I mean, you've got a time scale of weeks, days. You've got time to leave. Professor Marion Holness, thank you very much. OK, it's time to get experimental now. And every month, Ginny cooks up something from the kitchen experimentally for us. You've got a toaster on the floor. We've been talking a lot about heat and convection and hot things trying to get to the surface of the Earth. So I thought I'd show you a little demonstration where you can see why hot things like to rise and why this can be useful. So I have with me here a toaster, just a general normal toaster you'd find in any kitchen. I've also got a piece of cardboard which I have rolled into a tube. So we've got a toaster on the floor. It's got a large cardboard tube which is roughly a foot and a half high acting like a giant, almost like a chimney off the toaster. Yeah, so if you put your hand over the top, not too close, but right at the top of the tube, you should be able to feel some heat coming off it. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of hot air rising out of there. More than out of the House of Commons at the moment, actually. (laughs) Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to try and trap that hot air and see what happens to it. So I've got here a bin bag, and I've just put some little bits of gaffer tape at the bottom in four places, so roughly symmetrical, and that's just going to kind of stabilise it. And then what I'm going to do is put the bin bag over the top of the tube. And you might be able to see something starting to happen to the bin bag. Can anyone see anything happening? It's filling up with hot air. It is, exactly. So the bin bag is expanding. And that's just like our volcanoes expanding as the hot magma enters into it. Now, what do you think might happen to this bin bag if I let go of it? It would rise like a hot air balloon. Should we see if it works? Five, four, three, two... She does deserve a clap for that. Come on, you miserable lot. Okay, Jenny, so why did the bin bag take off? The reason that it was expanding as it was filling with the hot air is because hot air is less dense than cold air. What do I mean by that? Air's made up of molecules and they're whizzing around and it's a gas, so they can all whiz around quite a lot. But when you heat them up, what you're doing is you're giving those molecules more energy. So they whiz around even faster. And as they do that, they're actually bumping into the bag. And that's why you see the bag swelling up, because those molecules are rushing around and they're bumping into it. And because they're rushing around so much, they also end up further apart from each other than they are in the cold air. So you've got the same amount of space, but fewer molecules because they're further apart. And because there's fewer molecules in the same amount of space, it's going to be lighter. We call that less dense. And light things like to float, just like a cork floats in water, but a rock doesn't because the rock's more dense, it's heavier for its size, so it sinks. 
hot air is less dense, lighter for its size, so it rises. And the same applies to magma. When it's hot, it rises because it's less dense. It wants to float, effectively, on the denser, cooler magma. And you also get something called convection. So as this you saw with the um, hot air balloon, it didn't just keep going up and up forever. It went up and then it came down again. And that's because as it rises, the air inside it starts to cool again. And then because it's cooling, it's becoming less dense, it's becoming heavier. It can't support the weight of the bag anymore, so it has to sink again. The same thing happens inside the earth in the magma. It gets hot, it rises, it starts to cool, and then it can start to sink again. And that means it's doing this big sort of mixing. That's what we call convection. But it's not powered by a toaster. No, no, there's a bit more heat going on inside the earth than there is in my toaster. Ginny Smith, thank you very much. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and with Ginny Smith. And this week we're exploring what happens during a volcanic eruption. Back to Vesuvius now, and Pliny describes what he and his mother saw as they fled the town. We also saw the sea sucked away and apparently forced back by the earthquake. On the landward side, a fearful black cloud was rent by forked and quivering bursts of flame and parted to reveal great tongues of fire, like flashes of lightning magnified in size. Meanwhile, Pliny the Elder had chartered a boat to rescue a friend who lived nearer the volcano. Ashes were already falling, hotter and thicker, as the ships drew near, followed by bits of pumice and black stones, charred and cracked by the flames. He managed to reach his friend's house, where the scene was even more dramatic. Meanwhile, on Mount Vesuvius, broad sheets of fire and leaping flames blazed at several points, their bright glare emphasised by the darkness of night. My uncle tried to allay the fears of his companions by repeatedly declaring that these were nothing but bonfires left by the peasants in their terror. They debated whether to stay indoors or take their chance in the open, for the buildings were now shaking with violent shocks. Outside, on the other hand, there was the danger of falling pumice stones, even though these were light and porous. However, after comparing the risks, they chose the latter. As a protection against the falling objects, they put pillows on their heads tied down with cloths. Elsewhere, there was daylight by this time, but they were still in darkness, blacker and denser than any ordinary night. Then the flames and smell of sulphur, which gave warning of the approaching fire, drove the others to take flight and roused him to stand up. He stood leaning on two slaves and then suddenly collapsed. I imagine because the dense fumes choked his breathing by blocking his windpipe, which was constitutionally weak and narrow and often inflamed. When daylight returned, on the 26th, two days after the last day he had been seen, his body was found intact and uninjured, still fully clothed and looking more like sleep than death. Volcanic eruptions are hugely dramatic events that can literally tear apart mountains. And now to tell us more about what happens during one is volcanologist Clive Oppenheimer. What's actually happening inside Vesuvius when this is all going on? What's the process? Quite a lot is going on, as you might imagine. We've, we've had the magma rising in the crust. Uh, we know that there were earthquakes as early as uh, 62 AD, which probably signalled the arrival of this magma, and it took some further years to, to reach the surface. 
it can even take centuries or thousands of years to assemble a big magma chamber that's going to fuel a really large eruption. And what we can imagine is that there is something a bit like a balloon of molten rock down there, which is inflating as the magma is accumulating in it. And it eventually reaches the point where the balloon pops and the magma starts ascending towards the surface. And then what unfolds is, is this sequence of events, uh, these ash clouds rising very high into the atmosphere. He describes it looking like a pine tree with, uh, with uh, what we now recognise and call an umbrella cloud. What's pushing that ash out of the volcano and up into the air? What's coming out to drive that process when this eruption like this begins? Well, one of the things that makes vol- volcanology very complex and describing volcanic eruptions and magmatic processes challenging is that the molten rock is composed of uh, the three phases of matter. There's the liquid part, which is obvious, that's the molten rock. There are solid crystals in it and there are bubbles of gas. And that makes it a very, very complex fluid and it behaves in very complex ways as it reaches the surface. But it's the gas bubbles that really play the critical role in whether an eruption is very violent and explosive or whether it's a more peaceful effusion of lava running down the flanks of the volcano. Can you explain a bit more about that and why those bubbles are there in the first place and why some volcanoes have them and others don't? The Earth is composed of many, many uh, chemical species. Uh, There's a lot of carbon, a lot of sulphur... Uh, a lot of hydrogen, and these are light elements that, given the chance, want to be gases rather than being dissolved in molten rock. And as these magmas are ascending through the crust up towards the surface, those chemical species are forming bubbles. As they rise even closer to the surface, the bubbles are expanding very, very dramatically and taking up a lot more space. So the whole process can accelerate, leading to a very violent eruption. And ultimately, those bubbles can rupture the molten rock, and shower the, the atmosphere with, with particles of ash and pumice in a really violent explosive eruption. Which is what Pliny was seeing. Very much so, and the eruption goes on for a couple of days or so. Now, what I'm holding in my hand, Clive, actually is a thing which is the size of, I think, probably my head and a bit more. If that were granite, I'd never be able to do that. I'm holding it in one hand. It's a huge block of stone, but it's extremely light. This is pumice, isn't it? Yeah, this is pumice. Maybe you have a pumice stone in your bath and scrape off all of your calluses with it uh, on your feet. But it's really a a foam. It's a volcanic rock uh, made of the same kinds of materials that you might see in a more familiar, very dense lava. But it's full of tiny bubbles where the the volcanic gases used to be. So this has, has frothed up at the surface. And then because it's so light, it can be shot very high up into the atmosphere One of the other things about pumice is it will float on water until all the little air holes get saturated. And it's possible to find the pumice from eruptions that has travelled thousands of kilometres across the ocean. Okay, what about this piece then? This is something very, very different. This is ridiculously heavy and very, very small for its weight. What is that? This piece certainly hasn't come from, um, from Vesuvius. This is a chunk of black rock that's twisted into a form a little bit like a piece of rope. Uh, This is a piece of a a lava flow, and it's a a texture that we call pahoehoe from the Hawaiian word. And it's where you have relatively runny lava that, as it's being erupted and flowing across the ground, forms these coils and rope-like 
forms like this. But because it doesn't have all that gas in it, like the sample that the pumice we were just seeing, it wouldn't be explosive like Vesuvius was. That's why Hawaii just sort of oozes and, and is very pretty to look at and, and much safer, I suppose, relatively speaking, compared with these massive explosive eruptions like Vesuvius and more recently Mount St. Helens. That's right. I mean, there are certainly still a number of hazards that volcanoes like Hawaii pose. Uh, one is that the lavas are so runny that they can flow very quickly and reach quite long distances from the volcano. And if they reach uh, settled areas, that's a problem. Uh, but certainly you don't get the same violence that you do in one of these eruptions that we now call a Plinian eruption, as described by Pliny the Younger. From Cambridge University, Clive Oppenheimer. Thank you very much. So, Ginny, Clive has been just talking about different types of eruption, and I understand that you're going to do a kitchen science eruption for us. Yes, so I'm going to do an experiment now that a few of you might have heard of. Who has heard of the Coke and Mentos experiment? Quite a lot of you. Okay, so we're going to do this twice, and hopefully this might illustrate some of the differences we see between different volcanoes. So the first bottle of Coke I've got is full sugar Coke, and I opened it a few hours ago, and I've given it a little bit of a shake. So hopefully that will have got rid of some of the gas in it. I've got a rolled-up tube of paper and a piece of card, just like a postcard. I'm going to put the piece of card over the top of the bottle, the rolled-up tube on top of that, and then I'm going to take about six Mentos. I'm going to line the tube up. I've dropped the Mentos into the tube, which is lined up with the top of the Coke bottle, so all that's preventing them going in is my postcard. And then what I'm going to do is pull the postcard out and run away as quickly as I can. Do you want to count us in? Three, Three two, two, one. one. <laughs> OK, we've now got quite a large mess. What did you see? I saw a load of cola that's exploding like a volcano. So what was happening was that the liquid coke was fizzing and bubbling. We got lots of gas produced and that was then coming out of the top of the bottle because it was too big to fit in the bottle. Oh, right, and that's what pushes it out because the mentos sink to the bottom. They make all this gas get produced or come out of solution all around them and that takes up loads of space and there's now not enough space in the bottle for the gas plus the cola. Exactly. So Coke already has gas dissolved in it. That's why it's fizzy. It's got carbon dioxide. But what gas needs in order to form bubbles is something called a nucleation site. Basically, it's very difficult to make a bubble unless there's something to make it on. And that something can be a bit of dirt. It can be a little scratch in the glass. It can be all sorts of things. So if you had a perfect glass and you poured your champagne or your beer into it, you actually wouldn't get any bubbles, which would be a bit rubbish. It's the imperfections that allow the bubbles to form. What's special about Mentos is they have that sort of crispy coating on the outside, and that's made by spraying sugar onto them. And in doing that, it makes a very rough layer, and that layer is brilliant at nucleating bubbles. Because it's so rough, it's got all these little crevices that the bubbles can grow on. So when I put the Mentos in and they sink through the liquid, as they're sinking, loads and loads of bubbles are forming on the outside of them, and those bubbles expand, and the pressure caused by them drives the Coke out of the top of the bottle. And what is the relationship between this and what we're hearing about what Pliny saw? 
inside magma, there is dissolved gas, just like there is inside our coke. And as that starts to rise, the pressure is released and that allows it to nucleate and form a foam much like that. And that's what pumice is. And what about the other second experiment you've got sitting there? Okay, so my second bottle is unopened, so there is no chance that any of the gas has escaped yet. It's also Diet Coke. No one's entirely sure why, but apparently Diet Coke is supposed to work a little bit better than full sugar. One theory is that it's slightly less viscous, so it should bubble out more easily. The other idea is actually that the sweetener used in Diet Coke lowers the surface tension of water. So water has this thing where it likes to hang on to itself. And that's why you can actually fill up your glass and make it slightly domed because of this thing called surface tension. And the sweetener in Diet Coke disrupts that a bit. So it makes it easier for the water molecules to fly apart. And hopefully we'll get a more dramatic eruption. Who wants to see that? That's sort of like pulling the pin on a hand grenade. (laughs) So what you could hear there was actually some of the gas escaping. That's not ideal because we want to use the gas to make our eruption, but hopefully it was only a little bit of gas, so it won't matter. So I'm going to get my paper tube and my postcard lined up again. Okay, so we get the Mentos out of the packet. Is six the optimum number then? Uh, Six is what I tried it with in the garden the other day. Okay, let's drop the Mentos in the tube. Do you want to count us down? Three, two, one. So who thought that that looked better than the first one? That one went about a foot high out of the top of the bottle. The first one, it just sort of bubbled over the top gently but that one we actually got a kind of jet about a foot high because there was more gas in there there was just more potential for that gas to nucleate and form bubbles and erupt out but if you guys have a look at the bottles now what can you see about the coke that's left in the bottles more stayed in from the one with the sugar more went out in the diet coke Exactly. So if I look at the bottle of sugar coke now, it's still about two thirds full. We actually haven't lost all that much. Whereas if I look at the sugar free coke, there's only about a third left in there. So because you've got more gas, you end up with this more dramatic reaction that drives more magma out. But in both cases, there is still magma left behind. And that's important. And that's why a volcano never ends up sort of completely empty. And you can actually get multiple eruptions from the same volcano. Ginny Smith, thank you very much. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Ginny Smith. And this week we're talking about volcanoes. Coming up in the next 30 minutes, what makes volcanoes so dangerous and how we can make a model of one in a fish tank. And we're also following the story of Pliny the Younger as he saw the eruption of Mount Vesuvius happen. In a second letter, he describes what he and his mother experienced as they tried to escape the city while Vesuvius continued to erupt. Ashes were already falling, not as yet very thickly. I looked around. A dense black cloud is coming up behind us, spreading over the earth like a flood. Let us leave the road while we can still see, I said, or we shall be knocked down and trampled underfoot in the dark by the crowd behind. We had scarcely sat down to rest when darkness fell. 
Not the dark of a moonless or cloudy night, but as if the lamp had been put out in a closed room. You could hear the shrieks of women, the wailing of infants and the shouting of men. Some were calling their parents, others their children or their wives, trying to recognise them by their voices. People bewailed their own fate or that of their relatives and there were some who prayed for death in the terror of dying. Many besought the aid of the gods, but still more imagined there were no gods left and that the universe was plunged into eternal darkness forevermore. A gleam of light returned, but we took this to be a warning of the approaching flames rather than daylight. However, the flames remained some distance off. Then darkness came on once more and ashes began to fall again, this time in heavy showers. We rose from time to time and shook them off. Otherwise, we could have been buried and crushed beneath their weight. I could boast that not a groan or cry of fear escaped me in these perils. But I admit that I derived some poor consolation in my mortal lot from the belief that the whole world was dying with me and I with it. So why did darkness fall? Well, Andy Woods is a mathematician who models the way in which volcanoes work. So what actually was going on by this point in the eruption that Pliny's describing? So at this point, what we're hearing in the description is that the ash emitted from the volcano was rising high into the atmosphere and then spreading out in the atmosphere as a a cloud. And as that spread out, it would have formed a very thick cloud, kilometres in vertical extent. And so no light would be able to come through that. And so it would get darker and darker. And as that cloud spread out radially, the ash falling out would then land on the ground and form a big blanket of ash on the floor. Really? Kilometres thick? Yeah, so the typical height of rise of these large plumes is up to 20, 25 kilometres in in these big eruptions. So the ash is extremely hot. It's got temperatures up to about 1,000 degrees when it comes out of the ground. And that enormous amount of thermal energy can be converted to potential energy, which is the energy you need to lift material high into the atmosphere. And in fact, I have a little experiment I brought along to demonstrate how this process works. Behind me, I have a tank which is about a metre high. It's 20 centimetres by 20 centimetres in cross-section, and it's full of salty water. And the amount of salt in this water decreases as we go up through the tank. So the water at the bottom of the tank is very salty. And as we move To the top of the tank, the water gets much less salty. Why is that? So that's um, the way we set the experiment up in order to model the atmosphere. When you rise up through the atmosphere, the temperature actually gets warmer and warmer, effectively, and so the density essentially gets lower and lower as you rise up in the atmosphere. So when this ash comes out of the volcano, it rises up at very high speeds of 100, 200 metres per second, and it mixes with air low down in the atmosphere, and heats up that air. And it's that heating of the air low in the atmosphere that generates this low-density mixture of air plus the particles. And as we saw before with the, the bag lifting off the toaster, once we get the density of that air plus the ash to fall below the density of the surrounding air, that mixture can rise into the atmosphere. As it rises, it continues mixing, and it'll continue mixing and continue rising until the thermal energy becomes exhausted. And that thermal energy becomes exhausted when it's mixed so much of the cold air in the lower atmosphere 
that it, essentially the bulk temperature of that mixture becomes similar to the much higher temperatures higher in the, the atmosphere. What about the eruption column? How are you going to create that? For the volcano, we, we brought a pump along and we have a tank of red water to denote the red-hot ash that's coming out of the volcano. And if I turn the pump on, we're going to see the red liquid will come up and the red liquid is fresh water. So this is a model of very low-density water. So let me turn it on. We're now going to blow the water in through a hole which is right in the middle at the bottom of the tank. Imagine that Coca-Cola frothing up out of the top of the bottle. It's now coming into the tank and we see this red liquid rising up and you see it's a very turbulent flow. It's mixing and engulfing a lot of the, the water down here as it rises up. And what you see is it's stopped rising at this point, and it's now beginning to spread out to the walls of the tank. So now imagine you're standing down here at some distance away from the volcano, and above you, when you look up, you see this red cloud over you. This would be the black ash, and the light from the sun can't penetrate through that big cloud that's spreading out. And so Pliny would have seen it go progressively darker and darker as that ash spreads out, and forms what we call a giant umbrella cloud, which will spread out tens of kilometres away from the volcano at that height of about 20, 25 kilometres above the ground, the ash will gradually start raining out because the ash is heavy, forming a huge blanket of ash. Do you know what sort of mass of ash is going to be ejected by a volcano sort of like the size of Vesuvius? With a big eruption like Vesuvius, we're looking at 10 to the 6, 10 to the 7 kilograms of material coming out per second. So, 1,000 tonnes a second. Yes. So if you think about a, a domestic fridge, that may be one tonne. So imagine you've, you've got a, a cubic metre, it's a, a fridge, and imagine having 10 million fridges coming out every second. That's the amount of material that you'd see coming out of one of these big eruptions. But of course, it's not the size of a big fridge. There's going to be a whole series of ash particles ranging from very, very small particles that are tens of hundreds of microns, which is a tenth of a millimetre, and they go up to the size of this piece of pumice we have here, which may be up to about a metre in size. Now, as the eruption at Vesuvius continued, what happened after some time was the pipe, or the conduit, from the reservoir of magma underground up to the surface became eroded. It was essentially, if you like, sandblasted by all this fast-moving rock going past it. As it eroded, the eruption became faster and faster, more and more intense, and eventually the very dense mixture that came out of the ground couldn't actually rise up and become buoyant, and instead it collapsed and formed a flow, a pyroclastic flow, and this would run along the ground. Can you just explain a little bit about why it does go along the ground again? Because I didn't quite get that. Why does it not want to carry on going upwards, though? When it comes out of the volcano, it's by mass, it's mostly the solid material. And so it's actually quite a lot denser than the air. And it's only during the first kilometre or two as it rises that it mixes with enough air and heats up that air so its density falls below the density of the surrounding air. But as the flow rate goes to larger and larger values it can't mix enough air in that lower kilometre or two to actually become less dense than the surrounding air. So instead of behaving like a hot air balloon, it's more behaving as if it's a hose pipe pointed upwards with water coming out of it, and it goes a certain distance, and then it collapses back like a fountain, back down to the ground. So that starts spreading out along the ground. It's still very hot, and you still have all this very fine ash. It may be hundreds of metres thick, 
So if you imagine tall buildings that may be tens of metres high and it's going to be travelling at hundreds of metres per second, you couldn't run away from it and it would be actually very hard to drive away. So even if you think of Usain Bolt who runs 100 metres in 10 seconds, it would be going 10 times faster than Usain Bolt. So if we perhaps have a look at the experiment, we can see how this flow works. This looks like a fish tank, but a little bit longer and a little bit narrower. So what, it's a couple of metres long, 20 centimetres deep, 10 centimetres wide, and it's full of a clear liquid. Is that water? So it's full of salt water. And at the end of the tank, at one end of the tank, we have a what we call a lock gate. It's a, a vertical piece which actually separates the first 10 centimetres of the tank from the rest of the tank. And behind that lock gate, I'm going to add some particles to the salty water. And so you can think of these particles as being like the rocks and the ash mixed up in the flow. And because I had these particles, the density of this fluid behind the lock will become greater than the density of the fluid further down. And so this is an analogue of looking at the dense flow of rocks and air moving into the air with no rocks in it. So let's pull the particles in and I'll stir it up. So I've got a suspension of particles. I'll now pull out the lock gate. What you can see is the flow is running along the tank because it's dense and you see it's a very turbulent structure. It's engulfing lots of the water above it as it runs along and it's gradually slowing down and it's slowing down because the particle load is falling out of the flow and so there's nothing to drive it further forward. So what we saw when we took away the sluice gate was that the mixture went zooming along the floor of the tank which would be like the volcanic cloud coming down the side of a mountain, I suppose. But the further away it went, the slower it went. And that's eventually because there's no particles left to push it along anymore. That's right. And that's part of the story about how these very powerful ash flows propagate. But there's a really surprising additional effect that occurs because these ash flows are very hot. And so I want to show you a second experiment where we're going to include the effect of both the particles, but also the fact that the ash flow is hot. Now, the fact that it's hot means that the air in the flow is less dense than the surrounding air. And so as this flow propagates along and it drops out particles, eventually it'll have dropped out enough particles that what's left becomes less dense than the surrounding air. And at that point, it should lift off the floor and rise up into the atmosphere. And I've got a red liquid. I'll put some particles in, and this is fresh water now. So to model the fact it's less dense, we're using fresh water... We've got salty water in the tank, so the fresh water alone wants to rise to the top. But because we put particles in, the mixture of the fresh water and the particles starts off being more dense, and it's only when the particles fall out that it can lift off. This business about it uh, getting to a certain point and then stopping, are there any sort of contemporary examples? Because didn't Mount St Helens do that, where you saw trees wiped out, wiped out, wiped out, and suddenly you got to a point where all the trees were standing again? Yeah, so so Mount St Helens was really the first eruption where this phenomenon was understood because there were very large Douglas fir trees that were very, very big trees and they were all just knocked over like matchsticks by the big pyroclastic flow. But about 15 kilometres from the volcano, there was a line where beyond there, all the Douglas fir trees were still standing. And at that point, the flow had mixed with enough air and it dropped out enough particles that the rest of it was less dense and it rose up into the air. And we've now seen a number of examples of this at different volcanoes with flows travelling tens of kilometres and then lifting off and rising into the air. Okay, let's so, give it a go. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put in so my fresh water. what you're doing, Andy, you've dragged, you've dragged the slider back so that we've pushed some of the salt water out of the way and created a space at the end of the tank that you're now filling with the fresh, yeah, bright right. red dyed liquid. Yep. 
and we're now adding some particles. In they go. And if I pull out my sluice gate again, we'll see it runs along the bottom just as before, but as it runs along and drops out the particles, and it's now beginning to lift up. And, and so it suddenly stopped at one point and went straight up in the air, and now, now it's all gone to the top. So now it's running along the top surface. You can think of this as being 20 kilometres above the, the ground, and again it would become very, very dark underneath that cloud. And so it may be that in a big volcanic eruption, the material doesn't go straight up into the air, but it may run along the ground a certain distance before it lifts up. And I think now you can see very nicely all the particles dropping out, and this is what Pliny would be describing about being in a rain of ash particles. And because the lower part of the atmosphere has lots of moisture, all our rain cloud system in it, that moisture is also carried up in this convective structure and it makes the volcanic particles often makes them very wet and you can get hailstones and rainstorms associated with these big clouds. And so that's why you often see lightning and other, other effects because of the charge on the particles and also because of the, the presence of the vapour in the atmosphere. So they're very dramatic events. Thank you very much. Andy Woods. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Ginny Smith. And this week we're talking about volcanoes and what happens when they erupt. Pliny and his mother were lucky enough to survive their ordeal, but they returned to a scene of destruction. At last, this dreadful darkness was dissipated by degrees, like a cloud or smoke. The real day returned, and even the sun shone out, though with a lurid light, like when an eclipse is coming on. Every object that presented itself to our eyes, which were extremely weakened, seemed changed, being covered deep with ashes as if with snow. We returned to Missinum, where we refreshed ourselves as well as we could, and passed an anxious night between hope and fear, though indeed with a much larger share of the latter, for the earthquake still continued, while many frenzied persons ran up and down, heightening their own and their friends' calamities by terrible predictions. However, my mother and I, notwithstanding the danger we had passed, and that which still threatened us, had no thoughts of leaving the place till we could receive some news of my uncle. We know that volcanoes that erupted in the past, like Vesuvius, Tambora and Krakatoa, have had a massive impact on those living nearby and claimed a huge number of lives. Well, Peter Baxter is an expert on the health impact of volcanoes. We've looked at various aspects of, of what happens in a, a volcano this evening, but what's the main reason why people die? Well, that was the big question which was asked at the eruption of Mount St. Helens immediately afterwards when uh, 57 people were killed in the area near the volcano and a very large amount of ash fell downwind uh, in interpopulated areas. And I was in a team working in the United States at the time and we were contacted to go and investigate and find uh, the reasons why uh, people can be injured or killed in, in eruptions. And up to that point, we had no knowledge at all. To fast forward to Vesuvius, after several eruptions and being able to look, obtain more data, what we see in retrospect now on Pliny's account, what could have happened, and with scientific work that followed the eruption of Mount St. Helens on Vesuvius and the AD 79 eruption, that for the first few hours uh, when the eruption was occurring and the pumice was falling from the sky, people in Pompeii were under a, a rain of pumice which was building up on the roofs of their houses and taking shelter inside 
resulted in, in uh, deaths caused by the roofs of the houses collapsing in on the people. And out of a, over a thousand bodies which have been unearthed in the excavations at Pompeii, about 400 of those were excavated from buildings where the roofs had collapsed in on, on the people. And you can imagine that there were two or more meters of uh, pumice and ash on top of the roofs. And so when the roofs caved in, people would be buried in the ash and would suffocate. So that's obviously one very dramatic and um, physical reason. What about the, the fact that this stuff is in the air and people are breathing in this gas and dust? Does that make a difference? Yes, and when Mount St. Helens erupted, there were people uh, living 100, 200 kilometres away who were in an area where the ash had fallen heavily and there was no rainfall. It was a very dry area and for a whole week the ash was being resuspended and although it wasn't pitch dark, people couldn't move, they couldn't drive or take any transport because they couldn't see where to go. And we thought at the time that people would actually die potentially under this huge amount of air pollution. But in fact, it wasn't that bad. And so in most of these ash falls, we don't expect a lot of problems, except that people who've got lung diseases like asthma or chronic lung problems, people who've been smoking heavily during their lives and so forth, these people will be badly affected and need to take shelter away from ash. But in the eruption of Vesuvius, the, the greatest danger was the ash falling and the pumice falling on the roofs and, and them caving in with people inside sheltering. After about 12 hours of this eruption with ash fall, the pyroclastic flows and surges began, and then we move into a, a different problem for the people who were still there. I mean, they were quite literally being cooked, these people, weren't they? Because you've got gas temperatures of maybe 300 degrees, maybe up as high as we've just heard, 1,000 degrees around where there are people. Yes, we know from the investigations that we've done since Mount St. Helens that the temperatures at Pompeii were about 300 degrees centigrade. And so you can imagine how hot that is. And if you put your hand in boiling water, for example, which is 100 degrees centigrade, and then you turn up the heat and that this is impacting on your, on your body, then it's a very high temperature and people die almost instantly if they're exposed to it. I'm lucky enough to have visited Herculaneum and there are quite a few people who were taking shelter in the boat sheds which are now paradoxically many miles from the sea, owing to the fact that so much material rained down and moved the coastline back, you know, mm. kilometres, didn't it? But there are all these people sheltering in these boat sheds, and they've all got things like skull fractures and things like that, which people couldn't explain for a while until someone said, well, well could it be that actually these people were cooking so well and so fast that their brain quite literally exploded? Mm. I mentioned that the temperature in Pompeii was 300 degrees centigrade, which people were exposed to as the surges came down from the volcano. At Herculaneum, it was even hotter, and we'd go up to 400 degrees and even 500 degrees centigrade, where people were sheltering in the caves by the beach, sheltering from the eruption, but also potentially waiting to leave by the boats. And the very first surge from the volcano came down into Herculaneum, where the people were sheltering, and, went, and the cloud went straight into the caves where they were on the beach. They were instantly killed by this intense heat, which probably completely toasted the flesh away from their bodies and they were left with just the skeletons and this could have happened almost instantaneously. What about other things that can come out of volcanoes? We've heard a lot about gases and things like that. Are there any noxious gases that can literally knock people out, not just because of thermal effects but because they're just very, very poisonous? It wasn't a major factor in the Vesuvius eruption but in other instances it can be important. 
and particularly in volcanoes, which can just emit gas only. And the gases like sulfur dioxide from a volcano can be very irritating to a population living downwind. We had an interesting eruption in Iceland, which began in August last year, the Holoron eruption, where a fissure opened, and this was a lava eruption, so not like the Vesuvius eruption we're talking about, which is an explosive one. And here we have very fluid lava running out of a fissure in the centre of Iceland. And at the same time, a very high uh, discharge of gas, mainly sulphur dioxide. And the levels of sulphur dioxide in the air as the plumes swept around Iceland, depending upon the wind direction, were, were high enough really to trigger asthma attacks in people who suffered from asthma or um, really cause a lot of problems in people with chronic lung disease. But the Icelanders have these very, very good... Uh, resistant houses to, to weather and wind and cold because obviously they, much of the year they live in very cold conditions. And they were given warnings when, where, where the wind was blowing, where the plume would go, and people with these problems could stay inside and be absolutely protected. It's good to hear. Peter Baxter, thank you very much. Now, in this show, we've looked at the devastating effects volcanoes can have on those living nearby. But large eruptions like Tambora can even cause changes on the other side of the world. 1816 is known as the year without a summer because of the huge volumes of ash produced by Tambora. These formed a layer in the atmosphere reflecting away the sun's energy and causing a reduction in global temperatures of around one degree, which is enough to cause crop failures and widespread famine. But this eruption also caused some strange and beautiful effects, which I'm going to demonstrate to you now. So we're going to do um, a little experiment here, and I have two versions of it. I have one that's going to show you guys really well today, and I have another version that you could try at home. So I'm going to need someone to come and help me out with the one that you can try at home. What's your name? Gillette. Okay, so what I've got here is I've got a pint glass, I've got a bowl of water, and I've got a jug... And I've got in this bottle some milk. So what I'm going to do is just pour the water into the jug for you, because that's a bit... And then all you need to do is fill up the pint glass with the water from the jug for me. Can you do that? Okay, now I'm going to add a dash of milk, and it really doesn't need to be very much, just a tiny amount. Wow, when you said tiny, that really is tiny, Ginny. That's literally a few drips. Yeah, it really is. Just just a few drips. And you can see that white kind of swirling around. So what's that done to the liquid? The water is sort of white because of the milk. Great, exactly. So we've only added a tiny bit, but it's gone all kind of cloudy, hasn't it? Now, what we're going to do is we're going to take this torch and I'm going to hold up the glass and shine the light from the bottom. Now, what colour does the milk look? White. Sorry. Can you see any other colours in that at all? What does anyone else have? Purple. Purple. Can anyone else see anything? Blue. Okay, so when I shine the light from the bottom, it makes the milk look sort of bluey, slightly purpley. Now, if you look down the top, what colour does the light look? Orange. It looks orange, exactly. Now, that's interesting. And if I pour some of this milky water out, have a look again. What colour does the light look now? Yellow. Yellow. So it's changed colour. And all I've done is poured out a bit of the milky water, so you're looking through less of the water. I'll pour out a bit more. And what colour does it look now? White. White. So 
by changing the amount of milky water we're shining the light through, we're changing the colour of the light. Why did that work? What happened there is the milk is doing something really clever. It's doing something we call Rayleigh scattering. And what that means is that when the light hits it, it bounces off in all sorts of directions. So light is a wave. And if you imagine a wave in water, if it hits something, it can bounce back. And sometimes it can bounce back at different angles. And the milk in the water is doing that to the light. It's scattering it. Now, because light is a wave... It comes in different wavelengths. So red light has a long wavelength and blue light has a short wavelength. It's the kind of scale that goes all the way through the rainbow. Short wavelengths scatter better. So when you're looking at the milk with the light underneath and you're looking at it from the side, what you're seeing is the light that gets scattered out and that looks blue. And that's why the milky water looked blue. But when you're looking down the top, you're seeing the light that's travelled through the water. And that is whatever's left once the blue's been scattered out. Why does the blue get thrown out the side then? Because it's bumping into these particles of milk. And because short wavelengths scatter more, that's the one that bounces back. And, that, and the red it comes right through because it's less scattered. Exactly, yes. So when the light has to travel through all the milk, there's a really good chance that most of the blue will have scattered out. So what you get left with is red. When there's only a little bit of milk to travel through, it's less likely that the blue's been scattered out. So you get a mixture of blue and red, which gives you orange, then yellow. And then when there's hardly any milk at all, you get white. So with that really big long tube you've now got here, you're, you're able to effectively do this many, many times over what you've got in the glass. So you should get m maximum scattering and therefore you should see very red at the top and very blue at the bottom. Hopefully we're going to effectively see a sunset. So the Rayleigh scattering is the same reason that we see blue in the sky because the sunlight is hitting the atmosphere, it's scattering and we see what's been scattered and that's blue. And the colours that you see when looking directly at the light, they relate to a sunset. So I've got some more milky water here. This one I actually used milk powder and that's going to behave more like the particles of ash in our volcano. So what we had in the glass is effectively a normal sunset. When the sun's high in the sky, the light from it has to pass through a bit of atmosphere to get to us, but not huge amounts. So some of the blue is scattered and what you get left with is a kind of yellow-orange sun. At sunset, the sun's low on the horizon, so the light has to pass through more atmosphere before it gets to our eyes. More blue is scattered out and we're left with a beautiful glowing red sun. What lots of people noted is that in years with big volcanoes like Tambora, sunsets became more vibrant, beautiful colours. There are some beautiful paintings and poems written in the year 1816 that scientists now think are based on this effect. So I've got my water with milk powder, which is going to represent ash, and I'm going to pour it into this tall tube. I'm going to turn on the light at the bottom of the tube. What can you see? It's kind of like changing shades as you go up the cylinder. So it starts off as sort of a whitey colour and then it changes as you look up the tube. Sort of a yellowy colour and an orangey colour. So when you're looking through all of that atmosphere with all those particles in, you get a really dramatic effect of this scattering and you see some really beautiful sunsets. Ginny Smith, thank you very much. Any questions? 
Which eruption was the biggest? It's actually not an easy thing to answer because volcanoes that uh, erupted billions of years ago, we, we don't have much evidence left to know how big they were. Uh, the biggest one that you'll find is an eruption known as the Fish Canyon Tuff eruption four or five million years ago. We have a, a magnitude scale which is a bit like the Richter scale for earthquakes and uh, that's about a magnitude nine. Compare that to the Vesuvius eruption that we've been talking about, that's about a thousand times bigger. The last really big eruption in more recent times was that of the Toba volcano in Sumatra that had a magnitude of about 8.8, which is equivalent to something like three or 4,000 cubic kilometres of, of magma. And that one was only about 74,000 years ago, at a time when our human ancestors were, we were around, and uh, there's been a lot of debate as to what effect that eruption might have had on our ancestors at the time. My name's Amin, and I would like to know where are the tectonic plates on the Earth? Marion, tectonics. Tectonic plates, there's an awful lot of them. Along the centre of the Atlantic, it's splitting apart. So you've got one plate on the west side, which is the American plate, and then you've got the European and African plates on the east. So Africa's got its own plate. Europe is made of a mishmash of lots of small plates that are all sort of sliding past each other. The biggest plate of all is probably that of the Pacific. The Pacific Ocean, almost all of it, is a single plate that's moving towards Japan at the moment and away from America. Given today that so many people still live on the mountainside of Vesuvius, what happens if, if there is an eruption? Is there some sort of evacuation process that's in place today? Peter? So there is a national plan, but if we knew when it was going to erupt, everything would be dead easy because you could just get people out of the way. But we have this huge uncertainty of, even if it's showing very serious activity, whether in fact it's going to move into a eru full eruption or not. But the danger is so great that, that there will be a tendency to evacuate many, many people in advance. But that's the crucial thing, is knowing whether you can get people out in time if you delay the evacuation call. And, of course, hundreds of thousands of people won't like being moved to another part of Italy if the eruption doesn't actually follow. Do we always have an earthquake before an eruption starts, like Pliny described? Yes, I think you do. The Holocraun, if I pronounce that right, eruption in Iceland was preceded by a great swarm of earthquakes and, and Iceland's got an enormous number of seismometers scattered around it. And as soon as the, the first one recorded the first sort of set of earthquakes, all the um, geophysicists at Cambridge University got terribly excited and jumped on a plane with even more seismometers and they scattered them all around the area and they could actually see where this magma was moving by tracking where the earthquakes are in real time. And that was terribly exciting. So they could, they could tell pretty much when that eruption was going to happen. Well, I'm afraid that is all we have time for. A very big thank you to our expert panellists who were Marion Holness, Clive Oppenheimer, Andy Woods, Peter Baxter and also Graham Philpott who gave his voice to become Pliny the Younger. Thank you also very much to Greer Jackson for additional production and, of course, Ginny Smith. You've been listening to The Naked Scientist coming to you from Cambridge University where it's supported by the EPSRC, the STFC and Rolls-Royce. Do join us next time for a look at the world of the safety of flying. I'm Chris Smith and until next time, goodbye. <laughs>